Thank you so much, everybody. Um, I want to just have a short prayer, and then I have just a few short reflections. I know that we've been here for a while, and then we'll have a song, and then we can depart. Um, prayer has been so important, not only to the people that have been in the floods, but even for us. As elders, we pray every morning at 6.34. I don't know how long now. Every morning we wake up and we have a, a Zoom meeting where we just pray, a short prayer in the morning. And one of the prayers that we've been praying for a very, very long time is that God would use this church in this community to reach out. And it's an absolute miracle that this church didn't get flooded. Myself and Kevin and Andrew were on the phone like late in the night waiting for the water levels to rise. And it came so close, but we had no damage here. Um, and we believe that God used this facility and, and the people here and brought everybody together. How we all got together and how, how we just worked together so, so beautifully and just everybody in the community is, I believe, definitely because we've been praying that this church would be a lighthouse. Um, and so let's just take a moment to pray together. Gracious Father, we have heard so many beautiful stories of how um, people have come to, to the aid of those in need, Lord. We think of Karen and um, of Gail, Lord, and we pray for them, Lord, as you'd use them and continue to use them and have, how you have used them. And every person in this building, Lord, that have been at your service and everybody else, Lord, um, we pray for the churches in this community, Lord, um, that we would truly be our brother's keeper, that we would care. Lord, we know that we have been busy for a week or 10 days or how long ever it was, um, but there's still so much work to do. There's so many weeks and months still ahead that there are people out there that need to... Um, need care and love and, and, and our concern. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom and discernment and show us how to do that, Lord. We pray that we would care for our community inside the church and outside of the church. And now, Lord, as we open just your scriptures for a few moments to anticipate and to read and to understand what your, your desire is for us, I pray, Lord, that you would lead and guide us in that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was thinking about uh, what I will talk about this morning very shortly, and like I said, it's just a very short, brief message. Can I have my slides up there? Um, we're busy with this Grateful Living series, and I think there's a lot that we can say about Grateful Livings, but one of the things that I thought about is this idea to the streets. That's what we were last week, right? People came in and people came out. Like Some people didn't even stay long. They were here for five minutes, and then they were out. To the streets, the gospel on the move. And um, I want to tell you a story of a place that I think some of us might know really well. Um, let me see if this clicker works. If you can go to the next slide there. Um, a, a place that some of us might know really well. Uh, can you go? Yeah. Does anybody recognize that place? Can anybody tell me where that is? It's Piccadilly Circus, right, in London. So I want to tell you a story of one of the busiest places, one of the busiest intersections in one of the busiest cities in the world, Piccadilly Circus, right? And um, in the middle of Piccadilly Circus is this little fountain, right? And if you've been to Piccadilly, I lived about a half an hour from here for about two years, and I loved going to London, and I went over this place quite a few times. And, and if you go there, you will realize that a lot of people sit there. It's one of the fountains that if you go to London and you're busy around, this is a place where you sit down and have a snack and just rest from all the walking. Now, we all have seen pictures of this. This has been a famous place for so many years. Here's a picture, a postcard from the 1960s already, um, showing the, the famous Piccadilly Circus and the fountain that is there. Now, the, the fountain is kind of in the middle. It's the central hub of this Piccadilly Circus. But let me ask you a question. Does anybody know what that uh, fountain is called? Does anybody know? Here's the fountain, and it's, that's what's at the top of it. Does anybody know what this fountain is called, or what? 
Eros, right? Eros. That's everybody, you know, and if you look at the picture, you're like, yeah, that's Eros, right? Uh, so all of us would say, yeah, that's Eros. If you said it is Eros, you'd be wrong, because it's not Eros. It's actually his brother Anteros. A lot of people think that this statue is called uh, Eros, but it's actually his brother Eros. Now, if you know anything about Greek or Roman mythology, you'll know that, that Eros is, the, is what we would call Cupid. That's his Roman equivalent. Cupid is the one that would shoot his bow, and it was kind of a lustful kind of love. But Anteros is his brother of, of neighborly love, love for the other. And the reason um, this statue is here is actually... If you know this area pretty well, you would know that that's Regent Street that goes to Oxford. And that little street there is called Shaftbury Avenue, named after Lord Shaftbury. And the reason why it's named after him, he was a politician. And he, this lane runs all the way straight to this place, which is a, a statue that was put in to commemorate Lord Shaftbury. Now, you might ask yourself, well, who is this guy, Lord Shaftbury? His name was actually... Anthony Ashley Cooper, um, his dad was Lord uh, Shaftesbury, and then in the 1850s, I think, when his dad, dad passed away, he became Lord Shaftesbury. And he was a politician in, uh, in England, and he grew up in a very wealthy home, but he never really knew his parents. He actually didn't even like his parents, but he, he was brought up by his nanny, and his nanny was a devout Christian, and she brought him up um, as a Christian. And there were two instances in his life that meant an immense amount to him. One was one day when he was in the city, there was a pallbearer coming, a pallbearer is coming, um, carrying a very um, um, makeshift coffin. And they were all drunk, and they were carrying this guy that had passed away. And this, this image of, of death passing by him struck him so deeply. And the revelry of these drunk guys as they're carrying this dead guy spoke to him so deeply about the plight of humanity and what happens to us as humans. And another thing was happen what happened was at school, there was this pool that had a lot of bad water in it, and so it drew a lot of mosquitoes, and a lot of people got these mosquito bites. And so in Latin class, they were asked to write a poem, and he wrote this poem about this, this, uh, the terrible pond that's there and that it needs to be changed. And something happened, people listened to this poem, and it actually got changed. And so in his mind, he had this plight for humanity, driven by his Christianity, driven by his belief that Jesus is coming soon, and then also this idea that he has a voice that can do something, he started to petition for people. He was known as uh, the, the Wilberforce of his age. If you remember William Wilberforce that uh, abolished slavery, he came, um, Will, uh, Lord Shaftbury came just right after Wilberforce, and he was known as the Wilberforce of his age. There were various things that he worked on to help humans, and I want to mention just three of them. And I want to get this right because it's so interesting. One of the works that he went into, he went into insane asylums, and he started to work about... Uh, getting the conditions better for them. Now listen to the conditions here. One of the insane asylums there, Bethel Green, the patients all slept um, chained to beds, straw beds. They had to perform their bodily functions on their beds because they're obviously chained there. On the weekends, their beds weren't clean. Um, there was one towel for 160 individuals. And on Mondays, uh, because obviously nobody came into work on the weekends, they were all lined up and sprayed with ice water to clean them. That's terrible. Right? And so he went in there and says, no, 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 I cannot do this. These are human beings. These are people that God loves, and I need to do something. And so sorry, he started to petition and, and help to get these conditions better for them. Another thing that he did is that he worked, for ch uh, worked towards um, child labor and getting that better. 
for instance, he worked towards a 10-hour act. So children could work for, for so many hours, long hours. Young children as young as five would have to labor for uh, so long. And so in 1833, he uh, brought the bill called the 10-hour act. But listen to this. It was only till 1847 that this bill was truly brought in. So he didn't come in one day and say, oh, there's a plight here, there's something wrong here, let's do something, and then gets distracted on something. He was so focused on making the world a better place for his brothers and sisters. Another one um, that is, is quite famous is uh, this chimney boys or the chimney children. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, where these children were so small they would go into the chimneys. And, and here's some pictures. Oh, look at how small that boy is, right? Where they would go into the chimneys and, and work to clean the chimneys because they were small enough. But many of them, you know, young as five years old, would be sent up into these chimneys. Chimneys would still be hot or there'd be a lot of soot in there. And so they would burn themselves. They would get uh, all types of diseases from there. And nobody would care about these kids, but this man cared. And so he went to the streets, and he was helping these people. The day that he died, or the, the, uh, he, he was commemorated in London all over the place. And when, when it was his funeral in um, Westminster Abbey, there were so many, uh, so many poor people and disenfranchised people, vulnerable people that came to the streets to say, this was truly the man for us. This was truly the man for us. One of his biographers said this. It says, No man has in fact ever done more to lessen the extent of human misery or to add to the sum total of human happiness. He wrote in his own diary that nobody knows how much he has worked for his humanity except those that are his closest colleagues and not even they would fully know the hours that he has spent. This man was a man that was focused to make the world a better place for his neighbor because he was motivated by a love of Jesus, motivated by his Christian faith. C.H. Spurgeon, one of the greatest uh, uh, preachers of that age, said this. He says that, that uh, Lord Shaftbury was the best man of the age, far above all the other servants of God in my knowledge, a man most true in his personal piety, fulfilling both the first and the second commandment of the law in fervent love to God and hearty love to man. He himself said this, he said, everything, by, by everything true, everything holy, you are your brother's keeper. When we come to all of this stuff, we have to ask ourselves, are we our brother's keeper? We've been through floods here now, we've, we've cleaned up, if you've driven around here, it looks pretty neat and clean again. It would be easy for us to forget about the 2,500 people in the five kilometer radius just in Chindera that are homeless that have nothing, have no homes, have no furniture, have no clothes, have nothing. It would be easy for us to forget that these people are not going to struggle for the next week merely or the next month or the next five months. Or it could be easy for us to say, well, now it's the government's problem. Now they have to deal with this. We can step out of this. We have to ask ourselves, are we maybe now called to be the Piccadilly Circus of this area? that reminds us of what Lord Shaftesbury did, because we are just like him, Christians called to be our brother's keeper. The book of James says this in James chapter 1. Now, James is an interesting book. We call it a letter to James, but it's actually not a letter at all. It's a compendium of, of teaching. James is the brother of Jesus. He is the one that walked and lived with Jesus for so many years. He was also the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was the GC president of the Christian church at that point, right? He was the guy that they came to. 
And, and when he wrote his letter, what he did was he actually wrote uh, the first chapter, which is kind of the seedbed of all of the main things that he would later develop in the rest of his book. So chapter one is the introduction. Chapter two to chapter five is 12 various teachings that he brings together that is informed by two specific documents. One is the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, and the other one is the book of Proverbs from chapter one to chapter nine. So what he does basically is bring a lot of proverbial teachings together and, and essentially, all of them revolve around actually just two teachings, love God and love your neighbor, which is actually just one teaching, love. And so he comes together in chapter one, and he, he's outlining his main case, and he comes to this point, and he says, if anyone thinks he is religious, now let me ask you a question, is anybody religious in this house today? Are there any of us that say, yeah, yeah, that, that would be me? So he's defining something for us. He's, he's outlining something for us. On the, on the basis of the teachings of Jesus. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Then he continues, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled. Is there anybody here that wants a pure and undefiled religion? Right, we want that. We want a pure and undefiled religion, a religion that we come to God, a worship. Another translation would say a worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Here he defines the best worship that you can give God. If you think what is the thing that God wants of you, if you're thinking what is God's desire for his people, he says this, to visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction. Here's something interesting here is that he's not just speaking necessarily of the orphan and the widow. He's using them to say any person that is vulnerable, that have lost something. The orphan had no parent to fight for them anymore. The widow had no husband to fight for her anymore. They were destitute. And so he says anybody that is destitute, anybody that is vulnerable, as Christians we should look after them. To visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Here's something interesting is that as you saw in the video, one, thing, one of the things that we need is finances. We need money in order to buy stuff for people and to help, right? But it's easy for us to give. It's not always easy to go into their affliction. Those of us that went into the field the last week, man, it, it wasn't fun. Going in there with your gumboots into the mud, that's one thing. But going there and seeing the individuals, the hopelessness, there was one guy that was, was so hopeless, he didn't even know how to operate, so he has a carer that phoned me every day and said, hey, can you go pick him up? He lives in the Mantra Hotel. They've put him up there from the TAFE. He went to the TAFE, then he went to the Mantra Hotel. He lives in Hacienda Park, just behind us. And she said, can you go pick him up in the morning? He wants to go to his house, and then can you pick him up at night and take him back to the, to the, to the, to the uh, Mantra Hotel? I said, sure, it's a pretty easy drive. Every morning I pick him up, I said to him, hey, how, how did you sleep? How was your night? He says, I didn't sleep. I said, why not? He says, I can't stop thinking. Or what are you thinking about? Oh, I don't really know. Then you take him to his house, then you take him back, and you can just see the thousand-mile star, a stare that he has. Because this is too overwhelming. This is too big. He lost everything that he has, and he doesn't know how to get it back. He's already too, too old to go and work again. What does he do? God calls Christians, and, and this, has been, this has been the ethics of Christianity. This has been the ethics of God's people from the, from the get-go. He's always had this. Read the Old Testament. Read, read Isaiah. Read Deuteronomy. Read, read all of these things. Read the New Testament. God is constantly. Think about this when the New Testament church was set up. There were so many things that, that um, they could have spoken about. One of the major things that was one of the first uh, dis uh, topics of discussion for the early churches, should people be circumcised or not? 
Now just imagine this. Circumcision was so important to Christians. Why? Because circumcision showed that they were from the, from the people of Abraham. God had told them this is the sign of the covenant. And, and this guy, James says, let's forget about this. Paul says, let's forget about this. And when James speaks to Paul, he says, one thing I wish that you would do is remember the widow and remember the orphan. Because that's what Christianity is about. And to keep one stale, unstained for the world. So this is what he's saying. He says, true religion means this, speech, control your tongue. Something that we so easily don't do either. But he says, this is what you need to do. Control your tongue, bridle your tongue, service, take care of the poor, the, the vulnerable, and separation, reject the value system of this world. Because let's be honest, it's sometimes the value system of this world that is crept into our world that leads us not to serve the way that God has called us to serve. Because the value system of this world says it's all about you. But the value system of God says that it's all about others. Serve God and serve others. So as Christians, we have a great responsibility. We are called. And, and, and if you think where our church is situated, we, we're situated in one of the busiest streets in Chindera, one of the busiest streets in Kingscliff. People drive up every day here. How many people knew about the Adventist church? But now they do. We have been praying for God to give us an opportunity to serve His community. Now, like Kylie said, we don't believe that this is because, of God, because God brought this flood. But we do believe that God can use us in this difficult situation. That God can use this, this building. God can use this facility. God can use His people to go out. So the question that some of you might have would be this. Let me read this quote and then we can get on to this. This is what Alan White says in the Ministry of Healing. The badge of Christianity is not an outward sign, not the wearing of a cross or a crown, but it is what, what, it is what which reveals the union of man with God. By the power of His grace manifested in the transformation of character, the world is to be convinced that God has sent His Son as the Redeemer. No other influence that can surround the human soul has such a power as the influence of an unselfish life. You can be the best speaker in the world. You can have the most knowledge about the Bible. You can have all of these things, but the most powerful thing is the unselfish life. And then this is one of the most beautiful quotes that I think Alan White has ever penned. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. I think last week, people saw the strongest evidence of the Adventist church in this community when we were not sitting here, but we were out there in the street, the gospel to the streets. Now, we're going to keep on worshiping here. We're going to be here next week, worshiping here again, and the week after that. But we want to be in the street. We want to go out there and serve our community. So the question is, what's, it? what's, what's next? What, where to from here? So the first thing is, is that we, we have this, this um, initiative coming up with Arise called Building Back. Building back is when we're going to actually deal with the impact of disaster and trauma. Now, this is not just for people that have been a part of the flood. This is not just people that have struggled with, with the immediate things. It might be other people that is dealing with trauma or, or, or depression, right? So uh, Pastor David Haupt is going to come, and he's going to come and facilitate this. Um, and this is going to run um, here at, at our church. Um, but then what's going to happen next? So we've been partnering with these other churches here, the, the, the Garden Church and the Tweed Coast Church, um, the Christ, I always forget their name, so forgive me. You know which church it is, uh, Church of Christ of Tweed. We've partnered with them, and we've said we need to continue to do stuff. There's still a lot of work. 2,500 people just 
in our local area in the caravan parks. That's not to say the people in the houses that got stuff lost. There's a lot of people just in this immediate vicinity that need help, that need, need to do something. So we're going to come together pretty soon. We're going to start working together so that we can have for the next few weeks, months, years, how long ever it takes, come together and get a plan together how we can go and serve our community. You might have skills. You might have finances. You might know people that know people that know people that can help us. What we need is this community to be mobilized. We cannot just let this community um, suffer without us doing something. We are called to be, to be our, our brother's keeper. We are called, not just out of, oh, okay, now there's a small little thing, but as Christians, deeply in tune with God, there's a, there's a, there's a deep responsibility on all of us. Not the church organization. Yes, they're going to get involved. Not just the op shop. Yes, they're going to get involved. Not to, no, no, no. Every Christian that calls himself Christian has a responsibility to be the brother's keeper. So my call to you is, do you want to get involved? Do you want to help out in some way? So because we are going to make a call. We are going to call to you one day and say, hey, this Sunday we're going to go out into the community. This week we're going to do this, and we're going to ask you to come. And just like you came last week, came this, come, come every time because there's a great responsibility on us. And I must say I was very proud of our church, the way that we went about our business. I had so many people that come to us and say, man, thank you so much. There were people that came up here that have lost everything and said, man, the Arise students. There was one lady that came up to me and she said, what do you do with your kids? I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I run youth groups. They're not Christian, but they run youth groups. And I wish they could be like your, these people respectful. They went into the community. They, they did whatever they needed. We had people coming here and saying, man, how do you, like, they were just flabbergasted at the love that we have. That is the strongest argument that we can give. So let's keep on giving it. Let's keep on taking the gospel to the streets. I'm going to ask the worship team to come to the front as we um, sing our last um, songs.